listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn tonight in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 4. Let's read from verse number 1 of Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. We'll just end there at the end of verse number six. And may God be pleased to bless his word to your hearts. Well, my plans for this series are in the Lord's will to cover uh, chapters 1 through 7. Now, in so doing, we have already surveyed the introduction to the book, and we've seen the glory of Christ and his gracious work in his churches. That work that is epitomized in the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. We are, in the Lord's will, coming now to this next section, chapters 4 through 7. And the reason I've selected that section is because it allows us to consider one of the cycles that John presents in this book. Cycles. Cycles of visions. Visions that start and finish at the same point. Visions. Cycles of visions that have the number 7 as being prominent in such a way that John works us through the working of God in history from various perspectives. Seven seals, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven bowls. All of them looking at the same things from different perspectives. So rather than seeing Revelation as a chronological linear treatment of history, it comes at us in cycles of Revelation. Now, the proof for that is, is really pretty straightforward. The endings of chapter 6 and chapter 7 present language that is parallel to that at the end of the book, the language describing damnation and salvation. Look at the end of chapter uh, 6, verse 16. Now, the people say, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And then the end of chapter 7, you look at the verse number 9, for example. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And then down to the end of that same chapter, verse 17, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. 
and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now you will know the language. Uh, the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7 is found in the latter chapters, 21 and chapter 2, uh, chapter 22 of Revelation, indicating again this thought of cycles of Revelation. Not so much that chapter 4, if you like, begins at the church age, going through all the way to the return of Christ in a, a linear fashion, but rather going in circles. Cycles of Revelation covering the same things, really covering the information from the first century all the way through to Christ's return and judgment. And so chapter 4 begins one of those cycles. And John, he sees a door. Verse 1, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. An open door, a door inviting John to come in, to enter and to see. And as he comes, he hears a voice. A voice like unto a trumpet. That voice we will know from chapter 1, verse number 10. Remember the account there? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. That voice described in verse number 18. In these terms, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And the reference there to the death and the life, of course, speaks to us of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one with the voice like unto the trumpet. He is the one who was dead and yet lives and is alive forevermore. It's Christ who comes and speaks to John here in chapter 4. Come up hither. The voice, as it were, of a trumpet, the clarity, the precision, yea, even the beauty of this voice that would arrest John's attention. And how could he not but obey that great voice? And yet, as he hears the voice, he tells us in verse number two, and immediately I was in the Spirit. He sees the door, he hears the voice, and he finds himself once more in the Spirit, as he was in chapter one, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Just as I can pause for a second, there is an important application here that certainly goes beyond what was true for John individually. It reminds us that Christ is the prophet and the Spirit is the enabler whereby we understand the words of the prophets. We have the revelation of Christ, but we need the Spirit of God to do the work of illumination. Christ, the work of revelation, the Spirit, the work of illumination. And even as those we come with the completed canon, we must come with this sense of absolute dependency. The perfection of Christ's revelation, but the absolute need of the Spirit's illumination if we would understand the word of the Lord. And so as Christ invites John to come and to see, so John sees a throne. Verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now when you come to think of this throne in verse number 2, it's helpful to see that in light of the promise of verse number 1. The Lord has said to John, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And in light of that promise, the first thing that he, he, he witnesses is this throne. Verse 1, we understand to be speaking of the progress of history, the unfolding of God's purposes. And the unfolding of God's purposes 
The progress of history depends upon the throne and the one that sits upon the throne. Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John's vision parallels that of Isaiah and that of Ezekiel. Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1. And of course it does. The parallels are obvious. These two prophets, along with John, are they're receiving a glimpse of the same sight. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he's on to describe the seraphims that are there, covering their faces and crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so as we come with our eyes to see through the words of John, this throne, we must, we must pray. Uh, we must ask that we would have the help of the Spirit of God to respond like Isaiah does of old. Humility and reverence and contrition. For this throne is the throne that is a heavenly throne. The throne that Isaiah saw, the Lord sitting upon the throne, was a throne that all of the accompaniments of majesty filled the temple. This, this throne is in the heavenly temple. It is in God's dwelling place. It corresponds to the Old Testament temple. The throne, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark where God was, God's presence and God's power. If I can read to you some of the words of Ezekiel chapter 43, uh, the Spirit of God takes Ezekiel and brings him to the inner court, that is, of the temple. He sees the glory of the Lord filling the house, Ezekiel 43, verse 5. And then the Lord says to him, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. This throne room scene is a scene whereby we see the presence of God in his temple and we see the power of God manifest from the throne. The only right response is a response of awe and wonder and reverence. And as we respond in awe, we must see the centrality of God on the throne. Chapters 4 and 5, the throne is mentioned 17 times. But what I want you to see in these verses of chapter 4 that we've read together are the prepositions that are used in respect to the throne. If I can take you back to your English grammar class, you remember that a preposition, at least in some form, describes the relationship of a noun to a subject. And so the noun, the naming word, well, how do these various other things relate to the throne? Well, you see several here. Verse number 3, you'll see what it says in verse number 2. Behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat, here's a preposition, on the throne. How is it described? Verse number 3. And there was a rainbow round about the throne. Verse number 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. Verse number 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Verse number 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. All the things that we're seeing are seen in relation to this throne. So we've got to understand what are the relationships of these various things to the throne and what do we learn from that? The vision that we see tonight in chapter 4 is the vision that will comfort us. The vision that allows us to see, to see the unseen realities. 
We look in this world and with our eyes we see deceit and we see disease and we see death. We see wars and rumors of wars. We see ungodly men doing ungodly things. That's what we see, isn't it? That's what we see every single day. We see all of these things. Well, Revelation chapter 4 is what we need to see. One writer says this, John is showing us a different reality, or rather a different version of our reality. It's as if we're seeing reality from the other side. We're being flipped inside out. We're given the view from above in addition to our view from below. The normally unseen world that exists side by side with the seen world becomes visible in John's vision. Hendrickson, the commentator, says this, We see God's footstool. Let us not forget his throne. We see trouble and tribulation. We don't tend to see the glassy sea before the throne. And so the challenge for all of us today is that as we look upon this scene and consider the words of John, that we would do so with faith, that we believe what we read, that we believe what we see. And this, this sight would again encourage and refresh our souls. These verses, they describe a vision. They're not a literal description of heaven as it were. They are word pictures to help us understand the glory of God. Words fail to fully put into place what is true in the glories of heaven. And so as we see the word pictures, we've got to work and think, well, what do these word pictures mean? Well, I want to suggest to you several things. And we'll see how far we get tonight. We'll begin with the sight, this vision that shows us the majesty of God. The majesty of God. Verse number three. And he that sat, that is sat on the throne, was to look upon like a jasper, and the sardine stone. Here we see the majesty of God. I think it's proper to say that in this scene, the one that sits upon the throne is particularly in the concept of Trinity, the Father. The Spirit of God is mentioned in verse number 5 as the seven spirits of God. And as we'll see, the Son particularly takes the role of the Lamb in chapter 5. But here we are seeing the majesty and the glory of God, the jasper stone. My knowledge of precious gems is very much limited. And even also the fact that what we might describe these stones as an or day may have been different from the Greek time. It may have been different from the time of the authorized version. There's certainly some things that are hard to properly tie together. The jasper stone really is just a, a taking of the words of the Greek. The jasper stone apparently comes in a variety of colors. But this jasper stone is referred to in chapter 21 of Revelation and the verse number 11. And we get a sense of what this stone was like. Revelation 21 verse 11, Having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And the sense, of course, in verse 11 is this stone is something that shows the glory of God and the clarity as crystal. And so some say it might even mean like something we might say or diamond, a white stone, a clear stone that shows the glory of God. The sardine stone, people are more consistently saying, has the color of red. And so you're getting this blend of these colors, the crystal clear stone of the jasper, the red stone, of the sardine stone. What do these things mean? Well, we know, we know these stones are used in the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28. 
They're also used in the foundations of Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 19. So clearly they represent the Lord's people, but they only represent the Lord's people as first they show us the Lord, his purity, his beauty, his holiness. All of these things are coming together in these precious stones that are showing us the glory, the majesty, the holiness of God. This scene is a scene of God's supreme glory. And so you have before this throne, verse number six, you have before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Hendrickson tells us that glass is rare in these times. And thus to have a sea, a crystal clear glass like sea was almost impossible. This shows the magnificence, the holiness, the altogether separateness of God's. When you see men in this context, they are clothed in white raiment, verse 4. This is God and all the majesty and all the beauty of these precious gems. Not covered, not hidden, but shining in glory and drawing people's eyes to see the Lord and to, to catch their breath at the sight. That's the idea here. It is that when you see this, your breath is caught and you're at all because you recognize that God, he is not like us. And we see him in his rule as one who rules in splendor and majesty and in glory. It's hard to put into words. What is the majesty of God? What is the goodness of God? The glory of God? The holiness of God? Well, it is all that God is. He's splendid in his holiness. His eyes too pure as behold iniquity. He's splendid in his grace. What grace he shows to the worst of sinners. He's splendid in his wisdom. The plan of redemption wrought out in Christ coming in our humanity to die for our sins. Oh, God is glorious in splendor. He's altogether not like us. And so we come with awe. And you see all the company saying and falling before him, verse number eight, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. How we need to capture again the sight of the holiness of God, that we see that we have, we have no merit to stand in such glory. We must come. We must come clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, the glory of God, the majesty of God, seen in this throne room scene. Secondly, we see the sovereignty of God. A throne is mentioned here. Behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. The throne, and that piece of furniture occupied by monarchs and kings, speaks of the Lord's reign and the Lord's rule. But to help us perhaps grasp more of this throne and the one that sits upon the throne, let me turn you back to the book of Psalms. Turn back, please, to the Psalter. And let me show you a sequence of Psalms in around the late 90s, Psalm 93 to begin with, and then we'll move our way through. Just look at four separate Psalms here uh, that you will see, I believe, are part and parcel of this vision in Revelation chapter 4, in the sovereignty of God. Psalm 93, the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. You imagine the sardine stone, the jasper stone there. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. So what is the consequence of God's reign? The world also is established that it cannot be moved. God is the one who governs the world. 
The sense of God on the throne reigning reminds us of the stability of this creation in the order of God. It's not suggesting there is no turmoil. We're going to see the seals being broken and all manner of turmoil wrought upon this world, this world. But the world is established in God's providence until the work of redemption is complete. He is sovereign over all of these things. Not one individual, no despot, no dictator can destabilize the sovereign control of God. He holds this world in his sovereign control. What we need to see are not the thrones of the world, but the throne in heaven. And God's sitting upon that throne. So it says, the world also established that it cannot be moved. God alone will bring this world to a close. God alone will send his son to bring about the work of redemption and judgment. And so you have this heavenly throne that upholds creation. I think in part, that's part of why the sea is mentioned before the throne. Remember the sea in Revelation chapter 4, the sea, clear like crystal, this glass sea. Well, in the Jewish thought, the sea marked trouble. They were fearful of the sea. They were fearful of the turmoil, the trouble, the, the waves of the sea. But in heaven, absolute peace reigns. God's invulnerability, no fear in God. Absolute peace in the sea of glass before the throne. His government is a government of stability, not instability. So unlike the government of this world. Then you look at Psalm 96. The 96th Psalm and the verse number 10. Say among the heathens that the Lord reigneth, the world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. And then it continues, that's the repetition of the Psalm 93. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the fields be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. For he cometh to judge the earth, he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. As a king upon his throne, he is the sovereign Lord of judgment. Now we know, we see the rest of the Bible, we know that throne of judgment will come to its fullness, of course, in the judgment seat of Christ. He's been appointed by God to judge the world. But there's, there's a sense also that Christ even now judges the world he causes nations to rise and to fall. He brings individuals to their knees in judgment for their sin. He's a throne God, a God that sits in judgment upon the world. And then the Psalm 103, please. And you have the verse number 17. Here the word of God says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness upon his children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless ye the Lord, ye his angels. Here we're seeing a scene a scene of the angelic host blessing God in light of God preparing his throne. But he's prepared his throne in the sense of his mercy being from everlasting to everlasting. God of providence holding the world. God of judgment ruling and reigning as the great lawgiver and law keeper. The God of redemption coming in mercy, keeping his covenant, saving all those that he's given to the Son. 
You see, when you see the throne, back to Revelation chapter 4, and you see the throne, at the start of this vision, what you're seeing is the guarantee of all history being worked out in the will of God because the Lord reigns. That at no point in the rest of human history, as it has not been possible before, at no point can God's will be interrupted. Everything will come to pass. As Christ says to John, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Behold a throne guaranteeing all those things which shall be hereafter. The judgment of the nations. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Guaranteed because God sits upon the throne. The gathering of the nations, those who are part of Christ, that multitude, that gathering, guaranteed because God sits on the throne. That is the certainty of the sovereignty of God. Hendrickson says this, The purpose of this vision is to show us in beautiful symbolism that all things are governed by the Lord on the throne. All things must include our trials and tribulations. That is the point. That is why the description of the throne precedes the symbolic prediction of the trials and tribulations which the church must experience here on earth. And so he's going to say that. We're going to see it in chapter 6. Trials and tribulations. But in it all, God is on the throne. Oh, what a God we serve and worship. It's the God to whom we come and pray. It's the God whose face we seek. And we're simply saying, Lord, you have shown John things which must be hereafter. May those things come to pass. Because those things that were coming, they include the salvation of souls and the judgment of the ungodly. We pray to God that sits upon the throne a throne of judgment, a throne of grace. We come to this King who in covenantal mercy, showing mercy to thousands, is willing to show mercy to one tonight. He's willing to show mercy to you tonight. His covenantal faithfulness is guaranteed from the one who sits upon the throne. And so you come here tonight and you feel that need. I need the Lord's mercy tonight. You go to the throne of grace and you find mercy to help in time of need. You think of the world around us. We go to this God that sits upon the throne and we say, Lord, you reign. Do your perfect will for your glory. Oh, all of us, we need, to, we need to take our eyes back to the word of God. This world captivates our attention. Our focus is so dominant by all that we see. But as we look at this world, we must always look at this world in light of this reality. God sits upon the throne. And may that encourage and comfort our hearts. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.